Good morning. Welcome to Eastern Shore Baptist Church's podcast. My name is Stuart Davidson. I'm so thrilled that you have decided to tune in this week. I certainly hope that today's message will be both encouraging to you, but also I pray that it will be convicting. You can find out more about our church by visiting www.myesbc.net. God bless you and look forward to seeing you soon at church. Well, good morning. It's a pleasure to be with you here this morning. Let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to 1 Peter, the first chapter. 1 Peter, the first chapter. As you're finding your way there, I'm going to take a, a few minutes to just conduct a few preliminary uh, matters that I want to address. Uh, first, uh, as I do so, let me thank you uh, for giving me the privilege to serve you uh, as one of your missionaries among Southern Baptists. Uh, you saw the video there. I have the privilege to give oversight to that uh, through the North American Mission Board. People often ask me, well, what do you do? I, I travel a great deal in the ministry that God has me involved in. It's a unique uh, opportunity to impact the spread of the gospel through our military personnel. Uh, I often describe it to people this way. I tell them I'm a dotologist. Uh, that means I go out there and locate the dots, which in this instance are all the military installations spread across the globe, both the ones that are known and unknown. We even put a few out there in the Indian Ocean and other places like that to depict how we can start churches on ships as they move around and folks with technology today can, can express the gospel and even connect with their families back home. It's just an extraordinary vision that God has uh, allowed me uh, to be a part of. So I locate those dots, try to connect them where I can. If they line up, that's fantastic. And then I just get out of the way and let God do what he wants to do. That's really the goal of my life every day as I serve you in that capacity uh, as one of the North American Board missionaries. Uh, and literally the cooperative program that you contribute to on a regular basis helps to support uh, that ministry. The other way that I get to represent you also is a Navy Reserve chaplain. Uh, I happen to be the senior Navy Reserve Chaplain uh, for uh, our forces at this time. I've been in that role just a little over two years now and uh, could not do that without the facilitation of the North American Mission Board providing an endorsement, a validation of that ministry for me to go out uh, and contribute. That journey started a long time ago. Uh, and uh, Tony and Carol has mentioned a little bit of that journey as it started with us. It went all the way back to Clark College. Uh, I've been serving in the military a little over 37 years now. Doesn't seem like that long, does it, Carol? <laughs> uh, Carol and Tony knew me actually before I became a Marine uh, and uh, began serving. Uh, I, I joke about that a lot. The, the, the place at, in Mississippi there where Clark College was is now a mental health facility. But I said, I had nothing to do with that. That's all Carol's fault, actually. <laughs> I'm sorry, I couldn't. I don't have opportunity to say it that way very often. You'll forgive me later. So, uh, on my night, on my on the night I was heading towards boot camp, I actually stopped at Tony Carroll's house. I don't know if she'll remember this, but I had longer hair. I'll just say it that way, and I actually had a beard. And I asked Carol if she would to shave off that beard with her uh, buzzers or whatever you call those things, because she cut hair a lot. Uh, to help Tony uh, and them make their way through college and seminary. And uh, I just knew trying to cut all that off with the razor and stuff was going to be too cumbersome. So we go that far back in our days. Uh, 
That's enough about Carol. I really like Tony better. And what I'll say to you, I'm kidding. Uh, Tony and I used to do revivals together. Uh, we would travel together as a part of a team when we were there at Clark College. Uh, and a little bit at Mobile College as well. We got to share ministry. Uh, and what I recall about Tony always is that he was the preeminent professional when it came to leading worship. He was always prepared. He not only with the music portions, but with his heart uh, as well. And Tony never led in such a way that the attention was on him. Uh, us preachers, you know, we talk about music worship leaders, and music worship leaders talk about the preachers. And one of the things that's always my great concern about a worship leader is where does the attention go when they stand up to begin to lead people in worship? And with Tony, the attention has always been on Christ. And I thank God for that example, and I trust you've seen that regularly through your services here and know that about him. And I'm just so glad you're blessed to have that rendering here in this place. And I'm glad to share the platform with him here today. Uh, we got to talking about it before the service, and it's been a long time since we were sharing a service together. where He was leading in, in the worship, and I was uh, preaching the service. Uh, and I hope it won't be that long again. Uh, because the, the, when Tony called me and said, hey, uh, could you come over and help us out on this particular Sunday? I had no idea the blessing that God had in store for me today. Just to reflect on some of those moments across our history, but also to bring me into this place where Jesus is certainly alive and well and manifesting his presence. And also to see a few old friends among the congregation that uh, uh, we've bumped into, uh, the councilman family. Uh, James has grown up. Tammy used to be in my youth group uh, way back at College Park, and God has blessed her life uh, in extraordinary ways. Um, and we're just glad to see what God is doing in your midst. Well, I have one more piece of business we need to take care of. I have a disclaimer I need to read before I begin preaching. If you will pay very close attention to this, the views presented are those of the speaker and do not necessarily represent the views of the DOD or its components. If you heard my, what I said and understand what that meant, would you just raise your hand? Would you just give me a wave there? I know that's a little hard for Baptists, but I, okay, all across the crowd, you all understood that. Now with my role as a flag officer in the military, that's something that the, the, the lawyers told me that I probably ought to stay, whether I'm in uniform or out of uniform. And I agreed to read it on a consistent basis. Now that you've heard it, you just need to buckle up because I'm going to preach, all right? And I'm going to start here in 1 Peter. Uh, I want to read uh, beginning in verse 10. If you will follow along as I read verses 10 through 16 from God's Word. I'm reading today from the New American Standard copy of God's Word. Uh, but you please follow along in the translation that you have before you. Beginning in verse 10, we find these words. As to this salvation... The prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, and these things which you now, which now have been announced to you through those who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. Well, aren't we blessed today that we get 
to see into God's story and take hold of those things that angels desire to comprehend. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in your spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lust which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy. Be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. May God bless the reading of His Word. As we think about... uh, These words today, I'll confess to you, these kinds of messages are always a bit of a struggle for me. As I kind of parachute into a church that I'm not familiar with, um, it's it's a little challenging to know exactly what the pulse is of the congregation, exactly where you are. Unfortunately, through Tony Care, we have some impressions and sense of it. Uh, but I'll tell you, I have to go into my prayer closet and, and listen carefully to the Holy Spirit. I mean, there are lots of places in the Bible that we could have landed today. But through prayer and even reconfirmation this morning, the Lord said, these people need to hear these words. I want to encourage you to think about the trajectory of time. And as we begin reading in verse 10... God had a plan all along. Even from Genesis, he knew what was going to happen. It astonishes me someday to to try to fathom the depth of God's love, knowing even before he created the earth and humanity that we would choose to sin, and yet he created us anyway. He knew it would cost us his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, who would die an extraordinary death on a cross filled with pain and suffering, and he would take on the whole sins of the world, your sins and my sins, and yet God did it anyway because he sought to have a relationship with us in that fashion. Understanding that he would He would create such a salvation. He began to introduce it through the prophets uh, and, and those of old to try to get an inkling of what this grace would look like. And even the angels, as they stood around the perimeters of eternity, said, oh, what will it look like? What will it be like when it comes to fruition, when God manifests all his glories? So from that starting time to the telling of what the end of time will look like. Over in the book of Revelation, as you read Revelation chapter 20 and 21, where we begin to get an inkling of what God's glory will be when Jesus Christ comes again. When these verses talk about the revelation of the grace of God in its full manifestation to you in Christ Jesus. Oh, how extraordinary that will be. And between then and there, there's an expectation of us that Peter outlines in these verses. He says, you, church, you, believers in Christ, are to be holy as your God, as your heavenly Father is holy. How do I do that? Adam couldn't get it right. 
Daniel and those folks, all of those prophets, though they tried and tried, they, they struggled with it. Even after Jesus came and gave a personal demonstration, folks like Peter who wrote this and Paul and others, men much greater than I, have attempted and have failed apart from the grace of God. But Peter gives us a formula here. Beginning in verse 13, he tells us how we get there from here, from where we are right now. Look back with me at verse 13. I just want to take a little bit of time to, to unpack this verse, to give you some insights along your journey from here to there. Uh, as you seek to become obedient children, those who are taking part in the manifestation of God's grace, what is it that you can do every day to be successful at being holy? In verse 13 it says, prepare your minds for action. Prepare your minds for action. That word prepare, prepare in the original language is, it could actually be uh, translated gird up. Gird up your minds for action. You need to get ready to get with it. Now, when I was in high school, I worked for a gentleman uh, who was a horseman. He loved horses. He did landscaping uh, for his livelihood, but as soon as he could get away from that shovel uh, and those plants, he was back to the house and up on one of those horses. Uh, these particular horses that he loved to ride were called cutting horses. Uh, I don't know if you uh, have seen uh, those particular styles of horses, but they were used for herding cattle and very prominent in Texas. And he was one of the few guys uh, here in, in Alabama, in Mobile particularly at that time, that was involved in training, cutting horses and riding. He, was, he, he raised champion horses. It was phenomenal. Uh, but, man, he, li he loved this. He lived and breathed uh, this whole venture of uh, being a horseman. Well, because he loved it so much, I got exposed to it on a regular basis. Um, again, to just describe to you what will happen with these cutting horses is they will try to take uh, a group of cows, put them in a pen, and there'll be a chase horse, a horse that you get on that kind of moves the group around, and then one of these horses, the cutting horse, the one that the, uh, the, uh, usually the, the professional is riding will, will move into the group of cows and he will try to cut one cow away so that cow can be roped and then branded. So it really has a lot of practical applications. But let me tell you about these horses, the way they train these horses. It was like a horse I'd never been on before. I'd rode horses a few times growing up. But these horses, after they're trained, they instinctively know what to do. So if that cow jumps this way to try to get away, that horse will go this way. And if that cow, and you've seen these little young calves particularly, they'll cut back the other way. Next thing you know, that horse is lunging that way. And they train him in such a way that if the bridle touches their neck on one side or the other, that horse is going that way. And lo and behold, you better be hanging on. Because I will tell you what, they are moving so fast. First time he put me up in this saddle, I didn't know any of that. And the horse would lunge this way well of course what would happen to the bridle well i'd i'd pull it this way trying to hold on next thing you know the horse would be going that way and he would lunge six or eight feet that way and, and i was pulling back this way and man it was just chaos there for a few minutes 
And you know what? If that saddle had not been strapped onto that horse, we'd have been in a mess. I'd have been upside down twirling around that horse. He was moving so fast. After a while, Claude was his name. He said, Endel, he said, you turn loose of those reins. He said, the horse knows what to do. He said, you just hold on to the horn of that saddle and stay in it, and the horse will do everything else. And we found out that was the best way to do that uh, without getting me killed probably on that horse. But what I noticed after that first ride on the cutting horse, I started paying attention to what he did. Every time he got on that horse and every time he got off of that horse, he would check the girding. It was a belly strap. Again, it would go around the bottom of that horse. And when he got ready to get on the horse, he would tighten that thing up, cinch it down, lock it in tight. And then he would even test it with his foot as he got up on that horse because he knew what was coming. He, he knew there was some heavy activity and that, could not, that strap could not be loose at all. And then what he would do is after we rode for a little while, he'd come back to the barn or maybe go to get a drink of water. He'd loosen the strap on that horse so that horse could breathe. I mean, he had it down so tight that it was hard for that horse to even breathe. Then he would loosen it up. Then when it came time to get back on the horse, if we were going back out to, you know, after break's over or whatever, he would do the same thing. He'd go through this routine every time he got on the horse and every time he got off the horse to make sure things were secure. This is what Peter is trying to tell us about our Christian life and the way that we need to protect our minds. We need to gird up our minds. We need to have them cinched up and strapped down ready for action. Because you never know when God is going to call upon you to act on his behalf. Or you never know when the world is going to come against you when they discover that you are a believer in Christ. And they will try to lead you in another direction. You must gird up your mind every day. And how do I do that? I find saturating your life and your mind with the word of God is the best way to do that. We talk about it in simple terms. We say, oh, you need to have a quiet time. A daily time with God. Daily in his word, reading it over and over and over and over again. If I was to come down off this platform and ask some of you to see your Bibles, it wouldn't take me long to tell whether you're reading them or not. I'd say, well, Endo, how could you tell? Well, usually if somebody's reading them a lot and they're girding up their mind in the way that I'm talking about, they're marking some way, even in a margin or making a note or something. Now, I know some of you are very, very holy, more holy than I can imagine, and you would never write in your Bible. Okay, and, 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 and I even grew up early on in my life thinking that might be a sin. But you know what? I decided I could remember a lot more if I was willing to make notes and jots and circle key words. It helps me in my humanity to gird up my mind better. In fact, I have Bibles and Bibles now that are marked over the course of my Christian life. And I'm not telling you that to be arrogant uh, I'm telling you, that's what I've had to do to survive the challenges and the jerking back and forth that life sometimes deals me. And it is only by the girding up of my mind through studying God's Word. Well, even if you don't write in your Bible, I would still be able to tell because I could look at it pretty quick and see if the pages are worn. If there's any, you know, 
fray around the edges or not. You know, if you use a Bible very long, it gets thicker. Yeah, you've seen how brand new Bible, the binding is kind of stiff. Yeah. Some of you saying, oh my goodness, was he looking at my Bible when I, when I walked in? Did he notice that? It doesn't matter what I think. It matters what the Lord thinks. And he expects you to gird up your mind for action every day. Saturate your mind with his word so that you are ready as things come at you to respond in a way that brings honor and glory to him so that you may be holy. The second thing that he tells us here in this formula for holy living, he says you need to keep sober. Be sober. And my, my, my Bible even injects uh, in italics here the words in spirit. In spirit. It, it's, an, it's an extension of the idea. It's an, an interpretation of what Peter's trying to convey. He said, be sober. And the particular framing of these words uh, connect, connote for us continuous action. So it's not something that happens periodically, but it's an ongoing kind of activity. Now, some of my other Southern Baptist friends, they like to try to take this in literal terms right here. Uh, and it means that you should never drink. Never drink. I'm not sure that's what this particular text says. Uh, now, I will tell you, I'm a teetotaler in my life. Uh, I, I don't, don't drink. Uh, and that actually emerged out of an experience in high school. Um, where one night a buddy of mine thought it would be cool to go buy some beer underaged. And uh, we, we lit into that beer so hard between the two of us that uh, my little sister had to put me to bed that night. I had no recollection of what happened into the evening. She told some pretty funny stories to me um, about the aftermath of all that the next morning after I woke up with this major headache. And... Uh, and I, I determined then, even before I was a Christian, even before I knew words like this, I was like, you know what? I don't know that I ever want to be in a state like that again where I'm not aware of what I'm doing and I can't account for my actions. I bring that up because we're in the midst of Mardi Gras here. And there are people surrounding us with that kind of inclination. Even into the night, they are doing that here. I've, I was raised here in Mobile. I, I know what that's all about. And I will say to you, I don't think that's conducive to what Peter is chasing for us here. Uh, I'll tell you that uh, alcohol, it numbs your reflexes. It just makes you sluggish. You can't do number one if you, don't, if you start to do this one. That number one was be, be prepared for action. If you're sluggish, your reflexes aren't there, you're going to get yourself in trouble in a little bit. That's why we say drinking and driving is such a bad idea. The, the second aspect of this, as we, we stretch that on out a little bit, is they tell me in some of the research that they've done, and CNN posted this past fall a major study across the globe that said the benefits of alcohol do not outweigh the risk involved. I mean, these are people that are not necessarily Christians at all. And they did the measurements in multiple cultures, even where it's accepted and managed better. And they said the overall benefits that they will offer you, that you get out of it, whatever you think they might be, don't outweigh the risk. They even tell me that 
Alcohol kills brain cells. Lord have mercy, I don't have enough as it is. And the ones I got aren't that good. I surely don't need to be killing any. <laughs> All that said, though, Paul, or excuse me, Peter is actually inclining us to consider an extent beyond just the alcohol question. A better translation of this might be, be alert at all times. That's the indication. He said, you get your mind ready for action, and then you stay on guard. You be alert at every turn, because you never know what's coming at you. And if you're alert, if you're aware, in the military we call this situational awareness. If you're cognizant, it's a 360 impression of what's going on around you. If you're maintaining your bearing that degree, then you'll be ready for what's next. Let me tell you a story of a couple of Marines in Ramadi. Excuse me, a couple of Marines serving in Ramadi. This was a number of years ago. The story is reiterated by one of our Marine generals who went to visit this particular location after events on a particular day. You'll recognize the name, John Kelly, General John Kelly, uh, recently served in the White House. He was in Iraq, and he got word of an extraordinary story about two Marines one night who were killed in action. As he got the report the next morning, he thought, there's more to this, and I want to personally validate this. He was not a general at the time, uh, or uh, he was actually, but he was not as high in rank as he was later in his career. He was just, I believe, a one-star general at the time. Combat worn, but something stuck out to him about this story, so he made arrangements to travel to Ramadi and begin to investigate and hear this story about these two Marines. The story goes something like this, as it's reiterated by him. There in the night, these two units were preparing to transition. There was a group that had been there for a number of months. Uh, they had served their time, and they were getting ready to go home. There was a new command coming in and uh, taking over. There was about a one- to two-week iteration where they were swapping over, teaching the other unit what to do, uh, how to maintain their bearings and their security. Uh, and so this night, somewhere close to midnight, there were two young Marines. Uh, I think a Lance Corporal and a Corporal. One from each unit that were coming on watch. It was shift change. It had just happened shortly. You know, the enemy's smart. They try to take advantage of those kinds of opportunities. When there's new people coming in or when there's a shift change under the the cloak of darkness and sure enough these young men had not been on station there hadn't hardly had time to exchange names and get to know each other very well one from the hills of Virginia the other from uh, upstate New England uh, New Jersey New York uh, in that vicinity and lo and behold a vehicle turned around the corner 100 yards or so from them and began to speed up as it came toward the gate Caught these two young men, young Marines' attention very quickly because they were sober. They were alert. They were on guard. And they began to watch the approach. 
And they began to go through their drills and actions. Meantime, behind them, about 150 people were sleeping. Lives depending on these two men. Part of them were a part of the Iraqi security force, uh, another group of Marines. They were trying to rest uh, for the next generation of the mission. There were actually some Iraqi soldiers there with these two Marines that were supposed to be supporting their efforts. They began to run. They began to die behind whatever cover they could find, yet these two Marines stood firm. The vehicle picked up pace. The closer it got, the faster it got. And they realized that that truck was trying to breach that compound and kill everybody in it. They began to fire into the windshield to try to take out the driver. And the vehicle rolled just a few feet from them and then exploded, killing both of these Marines. One of them survived for just a little bit, but not long. They, the, the magnitude of the blast was so extensive, they had even trouble identifying these two young men, even though they knew who they were. They still needed to confirm. They had to get dental records and DNA to make sure that they had the right two people. Because there were no other Americans there that witnessed the event, they, they were having struggles confirming the story in order to create the level of awards that General John Kelly thought they deserved for that act of bravery. They were in, interviewed the Iraqis. One of the Iraqi soldiers said, I've never seen anything like it. It's unbelievable. Any man in his right mind would be running. But these two young men, they stood there and they died for us. They gave their lives so that we might live. And he literally watched it with his own eyes. The motor of that truck, when it blew up, it landed 200 yards away and crushed the building when it when it flew through it. Again, walls, concrete, other buildings in the area collapsed. And this man was hunkered down behind the closest thing he could get to. And he says, any man in his right mind would have been running. But these men were sober, alert. They knew what their responsibilities were, and they died. It took them a week or two to finally recover some of the security footage that was there on a building. And sure enough, when they discovered the footage, it was just as the Iraqi soldiers had said, that these two men fired their weapons until that truck was within five feet of them, sober, knowing exactly what they needed to do to take care of business. I ask you today, where are the Christians who are living like that as we engage spiritual warfare on a consistent basis? Where are those between there and eternity that are preparing their minds for whatever God calls upon them to do and they're alert and ready to act in an instance when the enemy comes to the gate and it's your turn to stop him? The next thing that he tells us here, in addition to 
being prepared in our minds and being sober, is he says you need to fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You need to fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What is your anchor? What is the thing that holds you steady when you find yourself in the froth of battle? When the enemy is bearing down on you and you even feel that urge to run, to hide, to hunker down. In Christian terms, it's the grace of God and God alone. That's the one thing that allows us and empowers us to do the things as obedient children that would astonish the world. You remember the story of Peter's life? This guy was a coward. He was a coward. He gets out of the boat. He's walking to Jesus. Hey, let's have some fun here. Show me how to do that trick. I want to be with you because that looks pretty cool. And then he takes his eyes off of Christ. And the next thing you know, he's sinking in the water. And he's yelling out for help. Woo, God, help me, help me, help me. I can't swim. He panics. Now, that's easier for me to say today standing here on solid ground, right? Yeah, that's Monday morning quarterbacking in some regards. I do give him courage for getting out of the boat. But when he got out there and trouble started, he panicked. Fast forward to the night of the crucifixion. Those same kinds of tendencies come out in him. It's a flaw in his character because of his humanity. You have one too. <laughs> I don't know what it looks like today. But just like if I held your Bible for a little bit and flipped it around and I could tell some things about you. Same would be true if I hung around for you a little while or we create the pressure. If we pressurize your life, suddenly those manifestations will come out pretty quick. Night of the crucifixion. Oh, you're one of his. You're one of his disciples. You're one of his buddies. Nope, nope. Never knew him. No, I, I, I'm just here to watch. But then take the realizations after that experience. When God's grace begins to abound in Peter's life because of the resurrection, Peter on the Sea of Galilee sees Jesus on the shore and he jumps out of the boat and swims to shore. He's not concerned about any inhibitions whatsoever. He just wants to get to Jesus as fast as he can. Jesus is challenged. He's there on that shore and he said, Peter, do you love me? You've heard preachers preach about this four, three times in correlation to every time he denied him. Jesus shows him grace and gives him the opportunity to say, yes, Lord, I love you. Yes, Lord, I love you. Then he says, go do what I expect of you. Prepare your mind for action. Be sober and go out there and do it fixed on the grace that I have given you. Kathy and I got to visit Rome last year, just about this time. Tony and Carol have been there recently as well, I understand. There, there's a tribute to Peter because of his faithfulness. In fact, the story says by legend that he died there in Rome for his faith. And when they decided to crucify him, he pled with them to crucify him upside down because he didn't think he was worthy enough to be 
crucified in the same manner as Christ his Lord. Wow, is that a transformation or not? Surely it is. There's a whole magnificent church there raised to his credit because he became a champion of the faith and wrote books like this to help us understand what it means to fix our hope completely on the grace that comes to us in Christ that will be fully revealed to us at the end of time in his eternity between the now and the then. I struggle with this, I'll be honest with you. It's hard for me. I'm just an old country boy from Alabama trying to be obedient to God every day. Some days it's hard. If you don't believe me, just ask my wife. She'll tell you. Ask my children. You know, they're the ones that know. And uh, I found that uh, something that helps me along the way, it's a very simple thing, and I don't know if this will help you. Maybe you need to find some other rendering to remind you of that grace in order to be able to fix your hope on that grace completely. Um, for me, this is an old bottle cap. I know you can't see it very well from where you are, um, but I'll hold it up as, as a rendering. It's just an old bottle cap. It's been run over about a thousand times. It's all rusty and flattened out. Being up, it's even starting to lose some of its edge now. I found one of these when I was... Uh, Gosh, coming, I think it was after Katrina, we had come out of that challenge in our lives, and uh, I was pumping gas at the gas station. You know how that goes if you're riding with your family. If you're the dead, your responsibility is to get out and pump the gas. Everybody else goes and uses the bathrooms, buys drinks and snacks and all that kind of stuff, and then comes loads back up. You know, hopefully they got you something while they were in there. Uh, and uh, so I was standing out there at the vehicle pumping gas. And I looked down on the ground and found one of these just laying there on the ground. And the Lord spoke to me in my spirit. He said, pick that up. Now, I don't go around hearing voices all the time, okay, just so you know. But, I mean, it was just like he was standing there next to me speaking over my shoulder. It, it, almost, it, startled, it startled me so much that I kind of turned around to see if him or an angel or somebody was standing there. And then I looked back down and he said, pick that up. Mind prepared for action. Alert on what's going around you. I said, yes, sir. I reached down and picked it up. He said, what is that? As I've explained to you, I said, well, that's just an old bottle cap. What's it worth? Nothing, I don't think. It can't even function to do what it was created to do, much less anything else now. And he says, yep, and that's you. That's you because of sin in your life. Sin has taken hold of you and slung you around like a raggedy end doll to the point that you're pretty much worthless without me and my grace manifested in you. He said, but if you experience my grace, that salvation, and begin to live as an obedient child and manifest that holiness, suddenly you become priceless. Manifested through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. He only had one begotten son and he gave him for us. For you and for me. I stuck that in my pocket. And I began to carry one with me on a consistent basis to remind me of the power of that grace. 
And it's helped me become a better grace agent, if you will. You know, we're supposed to be manifold representations of his grace to the people that we come up to. In my roles uh, of leadership, and sometimes it's just in the casual conversations of everyday life as I meet somebody and I'm trying to get something done. Sometimes they get in my way or they frustrate me. Uh, I won't mention the company, but sometimes I get on the phone talking to one of our communication companies and I'm trying to get something done or make a change to my account. And Lord have mercy, it just frustrates the living daylights out of me, you know, 30 to 45 minutes on that phone. And uh, that's just one of the iterations. And sometimes I have to put my hand in my pocket and feel of this old bottle cap and say, you know what, brother? That might just be you if it wasn't for the grace of God. You need to remember, too, that as you speak to those people, and gosh, this is such a challenge for me, but as you speak to those people, that I died for them, too. And as you're being holy and gracious to them, they will see the love of Christ that I have for them in you. Will you be that manifestation of God's grace? That's what God expects of us. Saturating your mind with Scripture is a great start. I find the thing that strengthens me in the sobering and the being alert is being in a constant attitude of prayer. Paul said this to us, pray without ceasing. Always be alert to what the Spirit is doing around you. And then I find that uh, that idea of fixing my hope comes with some tangible things like this. Carrying one of these in my pocket to remind me of God's grace. Or sometimes just singing those spiritual songs and hymns like we've done today. That's why I come to church on Sundays. is to praise God and to lift Him up. But also to fill my cup and remind me of the power of His grace. Tell me your name. Hey, Steve. I'm Endel. It's good to meet you. Would you receive this today as a gift from me, as a reminder to take with you of God's grace in your life this week? And I would ask symbolically that you would all receive such a gesture. I couldn't find enough of those old bottle caps today to bring one for everybody. But God expects us to manifest that in our lives. So go out there into this world. Surrounded by Mardi Gras and all the other things that are happening. Boy, there are parades, and I love a parade. But the kind of parade I like is a praise parade to the glory of God. And this world we live in needs to see us being that kind of parade in our daily activities. As we carefully prepare our minds for actions, stay sober in our spirits, and fix our hope completely. On God's grace. Pray with me to that extent, would you?